good morning, church. Welcome, everybody, joining us online as well. Uh, I want to make a, a quick announcement. I, I thought maybe Brooklyn would say something for herself, but she's uh, humble enough uh, not to do this. But Pastor Hudson and his wife, Brooklyn, are expecting their first child in February. Hudson and Brooklyn Garcia are going to have a baby boy. So affectionately already, the nickname is Baby G. So just remember that, Baby G, all right? <laughs> hey, just want to reiterate what uh, Pastor Todd said. This Wednesday, we're going to have a prayer and worship night. We'd love for the church family, the whole church family to come together. We don't do this often enough, but when we do, it's a really, really sweet time together. So that's this Wednesday at 6.30. also want to give a big thanks to the guys that hosted the men's gathering last night. Bunch of guys came. Yeah, it was amazing. Thanks to the guys who provided the food. You guys ate just a ridiculous amount of meat last night. It was, it was ungodly, the amount of meat that was eaten. So thank you guys for hosting that uh, as well. Definitely going to do that again. So if you've got your Bibles, we're in Genesis chapter 34. I've had this, uh, this chapter circled on the calendar for a while. And that's because it is particularly challenging. It is one of the darkest chapters in the entire Bible because it tells the story of sexual assault and murder. The assault is an offense against Jacob's daughter. We've been studying the life of Jacob for a few weeks, one of the patriarchs of the faith. I would love to say that through this trauma, he leads his family well, but he is in process in fact, he is in part to blame for what happens, as you'll see in a moment. Because he doesn't step into the role that God has for him as the leader of his family, things begin to unwind. There is no mention of God in this entire chapter. There's no turning to God, no talking to God, no prayer. As you read through it, it just seems to get more and more dark. But it's here for a reason. The Bible speaks of real people, real places, real times, you know, real human events. And because it speaks of them in a way that is uh, it's just so sobering, it's, it's not, there's no sugarcoating on it at all. It's, it's extremely relevant to our time, and, and you're going to see that as we work our way uh, through it. But it's basically man making a mess of things because he fails to, watch this now, fully submit to what God wants for him or her. Man making a mess of things because man is only partially obedient to God rather than fully obedient. And that will become more clear as we work our way through. So here's the story, Genesis chapter 34, verse 1. Now, Dina is the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob. So this is Jacob's only daughter. So she went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, who was the son of Hamor, and we find out this guy's a very influential individual, he's a Hivite, his son Shechem is actually the prince in the land. So Shechem sees Dina, he sees her, and lay with her, and humiliated her. So there you go. So I began by saying that Jacob is in some measure culpable for what happens to his daughter. And here's why. Back in chapter 31, God told him, leave the place where you are and go back to the land of your 
ancestors, your kindred. Go back to your homeland. That's the city of Bethel. Jacob goes back, but he stops halfway. So that's why I say this is partial obedience. So let me just throw this, up, this map up here for you, and I'll, uh, just so you can wrap your, uh, your mind around what this looks like. He starts off in the city of Sukkoth. Do we have it up there? Yeah. He starts off in the city of Sukkoth, and he crosses the river. And see, Bethel's down to the south, just north of Jerusalem. And so God says, I want you to go back to Bethel. That's the place where God first appeared to Jacob. That's sort of the area of, of, of his homeland. But instead, he stops in the city of Shechem. Now, why does he do that? Well, Shechem happened to be a very prosperous city. Uh, in many ways, it was kind of like the Scottsdale of the, the Canaanite territory. So he stops there, he purchases some land, and he begins to put down some roots. So that's why I say, this is partial obedience on his part. God says, go. He's like, okay, I'll go. Where? To Bethel. How about, how about Shechem? How about we go to Shechem? Well, it's in this city that the assault takes place. Now, it goes without saying that sexual assault is particularly devastating. And one of the reasons why is because it is a, it's an offense against one's personhood. And by personhood, what I mean by that is the way in which a person thinks and feels about himself or herself. Sexual assault is an offense against one's personhood. It affects the way in which a person thinks and feels about himself or herself. And, and this is why very often there are feelings of uh, shame and guilt. Even though the person is innocent, they still feel this way very often about themselves. Even as a victim, very often this leads to a, a sense of low self-esteem uh, that they carry with them throughout the rest of their lives. That's one of the reasons why sexual assault is particularly devastating. Now, when it happens against kids, it's probably the most nefarious and unwinding circumstance of a person's life. Because it is a direct offense against the child's innocence. And, you know, isn't that what makes children special? <laughs> it's like they have an innocence about them. They just have an innocence about them. And when that innocence is taken away, it's common for them to unwind emotionally. This is why very often they struggle with their identity even as they get older. They struggle with the emotions and the feelings and there is this, this unwinding that begins to take place that they carry with them into adulthood. So this sexual offense is particularly devastating. And... That's exactly what happens to Dina. Shechem is in the land of Canaan. By the way, don't confuse the person Shechem who committed the offense and the city of Shechem. Shechem literally means shoulder. The city was in between two mountains in the shoulder region. That's why this, how the city got its name. But Shechem, the man, he, uh, he sees uh, Dina and she's, she's traveling alone, which by the way, would not have been advisable back in the day. This is just, it's not something that women did. They didn't travel by themselves because they were particularly susceptible 
to being taken advantage of. Certainly not something that a father or a brother would affirm. So she's putting herself in a vulnerable uh, position. Shechem sees her and he immediately thinks, I want her. And he lays hands on her. And it's interesting because the text actually says that there's humiliation that's involved. And that is always the case. One person brings humiliation into another's life because of the way they are treated. So Shechem is actually a classic case of even a modern day abuser. And then what's really twisted in this guy, as you'll see, he does it all in the name of love. God had told his people, don't mix it up with the Canaanites because they worship foreign gods. As we'll see in a few weeks, Baal was a Canaanite God. He was the God of fertility. He was the God that brought rain and sun. And so if there was a drought and it was severe enough, the Canaanites would sacrifice their children in order to get Baal's attention and bring rain. God says, don't mix it up with these people. So he's in the heart of Canaanite territory. Rather than full obedience going to Bethel, he stops midway and this trauma occurs in the life of his daughter. But trauma is never isolated, especially within a family. It always has its residual effects. So this guy, Shechem, uh, he's a prince, the son of a very rich and influential man. He thinks he can do a bad thing uh, and get away with it. And most likely that's probably how he has lived uh, his life. But what happens next shows you just how twisted up this abuser is. Verse three, it says, and his soul was drawn to Dina, the daughter of Jacob. In other words, he begins to develop some emotional attachment to the girl he's just assaulted. He loved the young woman. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Um, this guy is like, you know, classic example of a trust fund baby, the spoiled brat, the man child. Daddy, I want it. Get it for me. What's really fascinating, what, what really speaks to our own time is um, that he, he says he loves her. There's a phrase that's been popularized in our culture. I'm sure you've heard of it. Love is love, right? Love is love. As, as if to say, love is like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. Love is whatever you determine it to be. What may be love for you might be different for me, but that's okay. You determine for yourself what love is. Well, are you gonna say that to Shechem? Because in his mind, he's in love with the girl whom he assaulted. And he doesn't have what it takes to earn her respect, uh, admiration, and affection. 
especially after what he's just done. And so what does he do? Dad, get her for me. Use your influence, your power, and your wealth. Get me what I want. He can't do it for himself. Which made me think of a statistic that I saw recently, and a statistic that outlines the use of pornography in the life of young men. It's really interesting to believe that one of the reasons why young men are delaying marriage is actually a direct result of the accessibility of pornography. And so through pornography, there's an immediate gratification without doing the work or exercising the will to earn a woman's respect and admiration so that she would want to give herself to the man. Pornography is a shortcut. So now we've got an entire generation of young men that really don't even know how to interact with women anymore because they're interacting with the screen. And what that breeds is a very false sense of intimacy. And this is right where this guy is, Shechem. So he leans on dad to get what he wants. Now this offense is even more heinous than you realize because for Dina, she's no longer a virgin. Therefore, she would put it this way. The marriage offers aren't going to come rolling in because of what Shechem has done to her. So she's in this extremely vulnerable place. The abuser now tells her that he loves her, speaks tenderly to her, and wants to marry her. So uh, dad now is going to get involved, but not before the relatives of Dina find out, her father and her brothers. Now, what may be just as telling is her dad's response, Jacob, because it's kind of a non-response and it kind of feels a bit shocking. Verse five, now Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dina, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. So he's waiting to say something until the boys return from the field. Verse six, and Hamor, the father of Shechem, he makes the first move, goes out to, to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard what happened to their sister. And the men were indignant and very angry. These Hebrew words describing indignant and very angry is just picture them as being white hot, red hot, white hot. All right? These guys are out of their minds with rage for what happened to their sister. Not exactly the same response from dad because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel. Interesting, don't say they just offended our sisters. They, this is an assault against our tribe and our people, Israel, by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be Done. Interesting. So dad's emotional reaction isn't really given. In fact, if you read the rest, rest of the text, if we will, it doesn't even show up. Not really painting him in a positive light. There's no real outrage or emotion or teachable moment. He's not really stepping into his leadership role as a father. And by the way, when God appointed leaders don't step into their leadership roles, there is a vacuum. And that vacuum is often filled sinfully. 
And that's exactly what you see happening next. The brothers' emotion are on full display. They're furious. Um, they would have been held just as responsible for what happened to their sister, just as responsible as dad. Uh, they feel it's an offense against not just their sister, but their entire people. Well, so Hamor, Shechem's dad, goes out to speak with Jacob. The boys are there, and so he, uh, he addresses them all, verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them. And he says this, hey, let me tell you about my son Shechem. And and let me just share his heart with you. Let me tell you what a guy he is. The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Now, essentially what he's saying is, we want your tribe, the Israelite tribe, to join tribes with the Hivites and the Canaanites. That's, That's the offer, right? Now, imagine, imagine, okay, you're, you're one of um, Dina's brothers, and you're just standing there, and you're listening to this guy ask for your sister to marry her abuser. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us. And the land shall be open to you. What we know about this land was really good land. In fact, this was the land that God had promised to give to Israel, but not in this way. So there's a little bit of a temptation here. He says, dwell and trade in it, get property in it. And then Shechem has the stones to speak up. Verse 11, Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So uh, there's no acknowledgement that he's done anything wrong. There's no apology. Uh, Instead, it's the offer of marriage. But what's, what's particularly insidious about this is that you can tell Shechem and his father are used to throwing their... Uh, their influence around and getting what they want because essentially what they say is we'll make you rich you can become wealthy we'll let you stay in our land we'll mix it up we'll intermarry we'll be one big happy family and tribe our land will be your land it's it's the the offer of riches and prosperity and wealth uh how are they going to respond well they're expecting an immediate response um But Shechem and his dad, they don't know exactly who they're dealing with. Remember, Jacob's name means deceiver. This guy has been a professional manipulator, and his sons have grown up uh, in his house. So uh, the brothers make a cold, calculated, and very clever counteroffer. And unless you misunderstand exactly what's going on in their minds and hearts, the author tells you, verse 13. So the sons of Jacob answered Shechem. So dad, Jacob isn't speaking at this point. He's not speaking up. He should be, but he's not. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. So in other words, they say, hey, look, we are the people of God and one of the covenant signs in our relationship with God is that we men are circumcised. There's no way we can join another tribe unless that tribe is circumcised themselves and then we would share that covenant sign with the same God. But remember, they're speaking deceitfully. 
Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you. We will become one people. Now that's all a lie. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. So as you're about to see, a couple of the boys that have grown up in Jacob's home are absolute beasts. They are savages. They're really good at taking life. You're going to see that in a second. It should also be noted that at this point, Dina has not been returned to them. She is living in Shechem's house. It's super messed up. This ruse is especially revengeful because if you think about it, what the brothers are doing is they are literally about to attack the very place where the offense actually occurred. Follow me? Verse 18, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young men did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he, this, this man has confused love with lust, obviously. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house, so he's getting special treatment. This kid gets what he wants. Verse 20, so Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city. Now, this is the ultimate sales pitch to the rest of the dudes in the city, right? Hey, man, gather around. Um, got an offer for you, okay? Here, here, here it is. These men, right, these Israelites, these Hebrews, they're at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. And the guy's like, wait, say what? <laughs> what do we get out of this deal? <laughs> Verse 23, will not their livestock, their property, all their beasts will be ours. In other words, essentially they're saying to the men, it's your opportunity to be prosper prosperous. This is your path to wealth, guys. Let's intermingle, we'll share our stuff, we'll all become rich and wealthy together. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Interesting. Um, Hamor, and, Hamor and Shechem, they know that these guys aren't going to like submit to the flint uh, without good reason. So it's, it's, it's the offer of, of, of wealth, and the guys buy into it. They agree. Now, at this point, the Bible does not spare the reader of exactly what happens next. Verse 25, on the third day when, when they were sore, the men were sore after being circumcised, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and they killed every single male, right? So like when these guys are all sitting around on a bag of frozen peas, <laughs> if you know, you know, totally immobilized and incapacitated, easy prey. And two of these savage brothers come in and they're cutting throats. Every male, every male. Uh, 
They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword, took Dina out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took everything, everything, their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field. They took every bit of their wealth and they took their kids and their wives. Everything that was in the house, you see the redundancy? In other words, the author is saying, these people were no more. Their bloodline was no more. No more Hamor, no more Shechem, gone from, wiped from history. Uh, this is explosive and exponential revenge. Now, what's interesting is that if you're a reader in Old Testament times, this would actually be a little bit shocking to you because it actually, it actually went against the shared sense of what general law was back in the day. There's this, there's this, uh, this code. It was, it's, it's like best codified like this. Uh, a law that was best codified by saying this, an eye for an eye. You've heard that before, right? An eye for an eye. So Gandhi, probably the most famous pacifist who's ever lived, he misinterpreted this saying. He, he, he gave his own commentary on it, saying if, if everybody practices an eye for an eye, then the whole world will be blind. Right? Here's what he misunderstood. The principle was meant to be a restraining effect on man's desire for overkill and revenge. In other words, you punch me in the face, I'll cut your throat. No, 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 that's not how we're going to do it. The penalty will be in direct proportion to the crime, no more and no less. So it was actually meant as a restraining effect to bring about the good of society. If you did something to another person, you knew what was going to be coming to you, no more and no less. Um, now, Jacob is in the position of having to respond to all this as the patriarch of his family, and, and he gives somewhat of a pathetic response to what his boys have done. Verse 30, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me. Kind of makes this about himself. <laughs> you brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are way smaller than them. If they gather themselves against me and attack me, it's it for me. I shall be destroyed, both myself and my household. So they're listening to, to dad, you know. They, they're thinking, yeah, we got revenge, all right, we made him pay. And dad says, shame on you. What you've done has now brought misery to me. And look at how the boys respond. They look at him and they're like, okay, dad, um, are you gonna let them treat our sister like a prostitute? Is that what's gonna happen here, dad? See, what's happening here is, uh, and you know, it's, it's, if you're a parent, you know how challenging parenting could be. But sometimes as a parent, we make things more difficult when we lose moral authority in our kids' lives because there's incongruency between what we say and what we do. And so, unfortunately for Jacob, for decades, his kids have seen him play the part of the deceiver and manipulator 
And now when he speaks about what they've done, he throws it back on himself. And he said, hey, what you've done is going to be bad for me, boys. It's going to be bad for me. It's kind of like, you know, I can imagine the boys in their minds are thinking, hey, Dad, um, before you call us out for the wrongs we've done, why don't you call yourself out? You know, why don't you call yourself out? Instead of pointing the finger at us, how about you and your lack of response? You even make this about you. And so Jacob has lost all moral authority. Uh, he's, uh, his own compromise has weakened his, the influence he has on his children. So let's, let's ask the question again. How did this mess occur? Well, two words, and I mentioned it at the beginning. Partial obedience. There's a difference between partial obedience and full obedience. God says, go to Bethel, go. Jacob says, all right, I'll go, but I'm not going to Bethel. I like Shechem, and that's where I'm going to stay. And bad things happened in Shechem. Partial obedience is it's one of those things where, you know, it's like, we're kind of halfway there. And I think the thing that's, that's, that's particularly alluring about it is that in some sense, we can be made to feel good about ourselves, right? It's like, well, I'm kind of doing what you asked, kind of. Not fully, but kind of. And, and we never fully see the effects of partial disobedience as we do sometimes when it's just full, flat-out disobedience. Partial, the effects of partial obedience sometimes take, take a while to manifest. Um, but disobedience always brings consequences. So why is this so challenging? I've been thinking about this a lot, you know, in my own life. And I think it might have something to do with the culture and the influences that surround us. You know, we live in, we live in, um, we live in a beautiful area, beautiful community, the valley. I remember uh, it first hit me when I was young. I was, I was flying somewhere and I'm reading the sort of the in-flight magazine and it was a contest and the prize, the prize for winning this contest was your choice of destinations, right? Either Hawaii or Scottsdale, Arizona. You're like, well, you know what, man? This is a, the Valley is a sun-soaked, leisure-oriented, laid-back, do-what-you-want kind of a place. I wonder if in some small way that doesn't affect our Christianity, right? Could it be? It's like, you know, we participate um, in the things that God wants us to if it doesn't cost us too much. Like maybe we'll give, but not enough to really pinch. We give our funds or our time but not enough to become too uncomfortable. And I just wonder, I've been wrestling with it myself, is this some kind of litmus test for our own partial obedience? Um, it's, it's a really easy trap to fall into. And it's comfortable. It's a really comfortable place to be. But if you look at the things that cause you to grow the most, I promise you, they will be the areas that are very uncomfortable for you personally. And most of us live life in such a way as to just straight up pain and discomfort avoidant. 
Maybe there's, there's something to this ancient text, this particular chapter, that's way more relevant than we see. It just so happens that today we're going to end our time together with the Lord's Supper. If you're new, this is something that Christians do to remember the death of Jesus. Jesus said and did a lot of things. But of all those things, he said, here's what I want you to remember. I want you to remember my death. That's, that's it. That's the most important thing. Because through my death, you will find life. And I want you to remember, because you're going to have a tendency to forget how important that is. And that's true. We, we kind of leave a place like this, and we go out, and we, we live our lives, and we're not reminded of what we've been given in light of all that we have done. But I wonder if today isn't a special moment for us as we reflect upon that. And if maybe we ask the Spirit of God to reveal those areas of partial obedience. Hey, and maybe tugging at your heart a little bit, saying, hey, this is one of those areas. Right? This is one of those areas. I don't, I, you know, when we come here, you've heard me say before, we don't come to this place to be inspired. You can get inspiration in a lot of different ways. You know, you can listen to motivational speakers and find inspiration. This isn't about inspiration. This is actually about transformation. So we need to pray. Father, as we enter into this time, God, would you please... bring to our minds and our hearts first of all just a reminder of the incredible love that you have for us it was love that motivated the sending of Jesus to die on the cross for our sins in the same way that Shechem was confused about what love is we can't know what love is apart from knowing you because the Bible describes love being God. God is love. And that was demonstrated through the death of Jesus. God, will you do a work in our hearts this morning as we take the next few minutes just in silence? That's another thing we don't do often is just stop and slow down and reflect on what you want for us and how you're speaking to us, Lord, because if we want to move beyond inspiration to real transformation. So God, we ask that your spirit would speak to us in the silence of these next few moments, Father. For your glory we pray. Amen.